You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. A capital sacked, set ablaze, government buildings smoldering. Panicked residents flee the city. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Now again, capital is set on fire. Any trace of its prior government scorched. The residents flee. In American history, we learn a lot about the one and not so much about the other. Let's start here. In 1934, President Franklin Roosevelt returns an item to the nation that the United States had obtained it from in a hostile conflict. The nation is Canada, and an object that had been sitting in the Naval Academy at Annapolis for over a century was the mace of the assembly of what was then Upper Canada, British territory at that time. Franklin Roosevelt says, The suggestion has been made to me that it would be gracious for the United States to return it. It was a symbol of representative government. The Congress agreed, and the mace was delivered back to the city, now called Toronto, but at the time, the mace was last there, called York. In 1934, the U.S. Daughters of 1812 were about to unveil a monument that would celebrate the Americans, including the General Zebulon Pike, who were killed while capturing Vatty, now Toronto, then York. And maybe it's this name change. Maybe it's the distance in time. Maybe it's bias. Or maybe Americans don't like to think of Americans doing something as bad as setting fire to buildings that happened in that York battle. And maybe for those reasons, it's often not thought of by Americans. Of course, we hear about the British Redcoats setting Washington, D.C. ablaze, burning the White House, not then called that, burning the President's house, just after Dolly Madison was allowed to escape, one of her servants grabbing the portrait of Washington. York was one of the many invasions into Canada by American forces during the war we know as the War of 1812. Now, for in 1812, we're calling it the British War or the American War. It's an odd war, right? Named for a year. But people start calling it that, the War of 1812, starting just a few years after the war ends. Even as a book in 1816 that refers to the War of 1812. And by the 1840s, after there's a war in Mexico, you can't call it the the recent war anymore. You need a name. 
and the War of 1812 seems to stick, at least on the American side. But the war is almost three years long, stretches to 1815. 1813 was probably the most ferocious and a high point of American triumphs in that war. The war is fought in an odd place. The river and lake system above the United States, now, that we know as the Great Lakes. See, it's hard to move across all of that land that is in the possession, at least nominally, of the United States at this time of 1812. It's all about water. If you want to reach settlements in the West, it's much easier to send a vessel through the St. Lawrence and to send supplies that way than to go across land. And the lakes supply not just items, but also news. It's an important communications route. Both sides want it, the Americans, the British. Control of these lakes, which the British had because of their naval superiority through much of the war, gave them control of Canada. As defenders could be moved from one area of the conflict to others where needed. Plus information. While the Americans were relying on orders coming from Secretary Armstrong in Washington, the British were much more aware of the situation going. So to disrupt this, the Americans decide that they need to take York. It is the capital of Upper Canada. Upper Canada is the more British part. Lower Canada is Quebec and Montreal and the more French-Canadian part. It's also under British control at this time. 1,800 men, led by Zebulon Pike, set out April 1813. They have gunboats that run past the city, pepper the city with grape shot. They attack its shipping yard. They are going to destroy some of the British sea power in this area that's going to help them in battles later. They do more. They land flanking U.S. troops to surround the city of York. That's it for the British garrison. They leave on a British naval ship, leaving the activities of surrender to the Canadian militia that is there. But on the way out, without even telling their own militia allies... They don't want the Americans to have a particular ship, and they don't want the Americans to have a gunpowder depot. So, on the way out, they have the ship fire on it. They destroy the ship in the shipyard, they torch the gunpowder depot, and it explodes. There's a problem with this. The attacking Americans are moving a little bit faster than anticipated, and General Pike and many of his men are about 200 yards away from the explosion. He's killed along with 38 Americans. This and a perceived delay in the surrender angers Americans, apparently without knowledge of the commander who's aboard one of the gunboats. Soldiers retaliate. They torch the Parliament building of Upper Canada, the printing press of the government, the shipbuilding area, and more. Any houses of members of the Canadian militia. The torching of York is something that's going to outrage British Canadians, harden resistance to the American invasion, and and the trouble that Americans are going to have during this war in multiple attacks on Canada is surprising. Because of York, the Governor General of Canada sends a message to General Ross and Admiral Colburn, who are attacking Maryland the next year, 1814, 
to retaliate. And this is part of the reason, along with other attacks, there is an attack on a port city of Dover that was particularly nasty. They retaliate. Burning the Capitol, burning the president's house, burning the treasury, destroying the Washington Naval Yard, anything that is not private. It's absolute vandalism to Thomas Jefferson, writing to France, of the kind unfit for today's times. But Canadians differ for redress of public and private property, says the rector of York in a letter to Thomas Jefferson years later. That reflects the bitterness about what happened at York. Well, Americans prevailed in that battle, but they hold the city only for a few days. And this is a repeated pattern throughout the War of 1812 and the American campaign to punish Britain by taking points of Canada, to improve negotiations by taking points in Canada. It's often said that the Americans wanted to invade Canada or take Canada, and that was certainly a possibility during the war. But there's a, you know, there's a quote from Henry Clay about this, that taking Canada was of secondary importance. The first goal was to punish Britain. How do you punish Britain? We're not going to send American troops to London. You have to attack their what is British territory, which is Canada. You hold territory, and hopefully some of the reasons that you're fighting this war, which if you're going back to the War of 1812, had a great deal to do with impressment of sailors, with the taking of ships. We lost something, 1,200 vessels during this period to British capture. Several thousand American, put quotes around that, American sailors were impressed into the British Navy. Now, you have to put quotes around that because there's different points of view on this, what actually happened with impressment. It is indeed the case that there were American citizens born, native born in America, who were taken. Maybe they were unlucky to be in an American seaport at the time that there was a British gang there. That's rare. Maybe they were aboard an American merchant vessel and taken because it believed that they were British citizens. More commonly, there were British citizens who, for the lure of better pay to get out of the British Navy, joined American merchant vessel crews. And as far as Great Britain was concerned, these people were British citizens have an obligation to serve in the Navy. This is just like a draft in Pressman. Everyone who could had to serve. And so you'd be pressed in. They did not care if you also had American citizenship. Many of the British sailors on American cruises didn't bother to get citizenship in any case. So this is a complex issue, controversial issue, but something that was the great affront to Americans. This and the idea that the British were stimulating Indian tribes in the western border to attack American settlements to prevent Americans from moving westward in their settlement. So what do you do? You attack them where you can, and Canada was it. Several attempts to take Montreal fail. An invasion force led by Generals Hampton and Wilkerson is only half ready. Half of them don't even make it across the border. It's defeated by a French-Canadian commander, Charles de Salisbury. This is something widely celebrated in Canada, not so much here. 
finds the Americans and contests them in an excellent Riverford position. They never reach Montreal. It's on a cliff. It's well defended. It's never threatened by American troops during this war. Suffice it to say that the efforts of 1813 and early 1814 to take Canada are not as successful as planned. It's so surprising to Americans. Jefferson was not speaking out of turn or saying something extraordinary when he said that taking Canada would be a mere matter of marching. That's what Americans, many Americans, thought. Many of those living in Canada were French Canadians, only part of the British Empire for 60 years after the French and Indian War. Some of the Canadians living in Canada were American settlers who moved up there, and they would be sympathetic, right? Canada has a fraction of the United States population. Americans are never able to capitalize on this population advantage to get enough troops up there willing to go. During the attempt to take Montreal with Hampton and Wilkerson, there's a New York militia unit that stays in New York that refuses to cross the border and aid the effort. Yet, as tough as it was for Americans in the War of 1812, it was never quite as easy for the British to do what they wanted either. Never substantially captured or held on to any territory. Oh, there's a small amount. For instance, for a period of about seven or eight months, the British hold a 100-mile area of the coast of Maine. It's uncontested. There's never a, an, an effort. The, the citizens living in Maine kind of like having the trade with the British and Canada because this is a, there's been a period of embargoes. There's this seesaw pattern that you see taking place. Americans prevail at York, then at Fort George, the most western British fort in Upper Canada on Lake Ontario. They capture it, May 1813. But British wins at the Battle of Stony Creek, the Battle of Beaver Dam stop further American attacks during that campaign. Americans then win at Newark on the Niagara. British raid Buffalo in retaliation. There's the Battle of Chrysler's Farm, Lower Canada, which is a decisive British victory over the rear guard of General James Wilkinson. This convinces Wilkinson to abandon the entire campaign to enter Canada, moving down the St. Lawrence River. In 1814, the Americans win at Fort Erie and win at the Battle of Chippewa Creek. Then one of the best trained, most well-equipped forces, these are U.S. regulars under Winfield Scott, is held to a draw at Lundy's Lane. This is one of the largest battles of the war, by the way. About a quarter of the casualties on the American side are caused in that conflict. A direct frontal attack on British forces defending Canada. British try to take Fort Erie back. Cannot and are stopped. American victory there. But then the British take Oswego, New York and Fort Ontario. So back and forth, back and forth. And then you have the Battle of Lake Champlain, December 1814. A battle lost to history, but one just as important to how this war ended, just as important as to American identity as New Orleans was. And like New Orleans, it represents the British on a renewed offensive, a combined naval and land assault with fresh troops from Europe. They had defeated Napoleon. Now, Napoleon's on the island of Elba. Now, he's going to escape from there, but not yet. So right now they defeated Napoleon. They brought these troops over. As to the Battle of Lake Champlain, it has a naval component and a less important land component that sort of relied on the naval aspect. And we're fortunate to have four viewpoints on this battle. The commander of the victorious American vessel, 
the highest-ranking British officer, a doctor, James Mann, who was on an island nearby and recorded in his diary. But one of the most interesting has to be the recollections of a 101-year-old man interviewed in 1901 in Outlook magazine, J.E. Tuttle, who was a teenager and the son of a militia sergeant at the time. He lived nearby. Here's what J.E. Tuttle says. Well, we was watching, and father had gone. When about sunrise, we saw the mass of the British ships down at the outlet. I got mother and my two sisters in the team and put for Sawyer's Hill two miles away as fast as I could make the horses go. That was right opposite Plattsburgh, and the fight was in the bay, right close down opposite the hill. Now from Daniel Prigg, who is the surviving British captain here. The fleet came on the 8th, but for want of stores of equipment of the guns, could not move forward until the 11th. At daybreak, we weighed, and at 7 we were in full view of the enemy's fleet, consisting of a ship, brig, schooner, and one sloop, moored in line abreast of their encampment, with a division of five gunboats on each flank. At 40 minutes past 7, after the officers commanding vessels and the flotilla had received their final instructions as to the plan of attack, we made sail in order of battle. Back to J.E. Tuttle. They looked very fine coming up the river. They had about a dozen row galleys with a cannon at each end and twelve men to each, six on a side. They were towing the ships, which had the sails up because there was so little wind. They didn't hurry any, but they calculated the land army to reach Plattsburgh about the time that they got into the bay. From Thomas McDonough, the Commodore of the fleet, captain of the Saratoga, in his official report to William Jones, Secretary of the Navy in Washington, after the battle. For several days, the enemy were on their way to Plattsburgh by land and water, and it being understood that an attack would be made at the same time by their land and naval forces, I determined to await at anchor the approach of the latter. At 8 a.m., the lookout boat announced the approach of the enemy. At 9, he anchored in a line ahead, at about 300 yards distance from my line. His ship opposed to the Saratoga, his brig to the Eagle, his galleys 13 in number to the Schooner Sloop, and a division of our galleys. In this situation, the whole force on both sides became engaged, the Saratoga suffering much of the heavy fire of the Confiance. I could perceive at the same time, however, that our fire was very destructive to her. From the diary of Dr. James Mann. During this gallant resistance made by the volunteer and militia, a heavy fire was opened from seven batteries upon the fortifications, some of which were in the distance of 400 yards. The fire, which was unceasingly vomited from the mouths of 200 pieces of cannon, was terrible. The whole exhibition on water and land, in addition to the uninterrupted cracks of musketry in the far south of the fortifications, to a spectator in full view of the fleets and batteries, was awfully grand. Back to J.E. Tuttle. I didn't know for a spell which would lick, but our folks was too spry for the Britishers. Sometimes I thought one or two of the vessels was on fire. They fired so fast. They seemed to be just covered with flame. One of our schooners was manned by British sailors who had deserted from the British. If they didn't fight, it was life or death with them. I certainly thought she was on fire a number of times. I wasn't a mile from the ships. 
The noise kept getting worse and worse all the time. The way the cannonball skipped on the water was wonderful. Daniel Prigg, British captain again. At eight, the enemy's gunboats and smaller vessels commenced a heavy and galling fire on our line. At ten minutes after eight, the Confiance, having two anchors shot away from her larboard bow and the wind baffling, was obliged to anchor within two cables' length of her adversary. The Lynette and the Chubb soon after took their allotted station, something short of that distance, when the crews on both sides cheered and commenced a spirited and close action. The fine style in which Captain Downey conducted the squadron into action had missed a tremendous fire without returning a shot until secured reflects the greatest credit to his memory. A more from McDonough. At half past ten o'clock, the Eagle, not being able to bring her guns to bear, cut her cable and anchored in a more eligible position between my ship and the Ticonderoga, where she very much annoyed the enemy but unfortunately leaving me exposed to a galling fire from the enemy's brig. Our guns on the starboard side being nearly all dismounted or not manageable, a stern anchor was let go, the bower cable cut, and the ship winded, now turned around with a fresh broadside on the enemy's ship, which soon after surrendered. Back to J.E. Tuttle. Captain McDonough was a very smart man. He had anchored all of our vessels on spring cables. They could fire one broadside, and while they was loading that side again, could swing on them spring cables and let go the other side. That's what fixed the British. They didn't know that we had them springs, and they couldn't have helped it if they had. They had to go right between our vessels anyhow, and I tell you, they got a terrible raking. What with the broadsides fired so quick, and these galleys pestering over, it was awful. She stood it about two hours, and then hauled down her colors. Blood was everywhere. I never seen anything in this world like it. Seemed as if everybody had been killed. They must have fought terribly before they hauled down the flag. Almost made me sick. From Dr. Man's Diary again. Two full hours of victory was held in suspense when a huzzah aboard the ship Saratoga announced its victory over its antagonist the British Commodore's ship, the Confiance. The brilliancy of this action was never surpassed, especially as the event was of highest importance in the nation. J. Tuttle again. Well, when we got home, I put up the horses. We felt worried about Father. I told you he was an orderly sergeant. We knew he had been in the fight somewhere on shore, but not just where nor what happened to him. While the British vessels was coming up the lake to the bay, the British army was marching along the western shore towards Plattsburgh. They got there just about the time the vessels got into the bay. It looked like the British would have a pretty easy time of it. The British tried hard to get across the river in Plattsburgh, but they couldn't. Why, you see, all the Vermont militia were there. It was impossible to get across that river. They finally gave up all idea of taking Plattsburgh when they see the fleet taken and found they couldn't take the forts either. Our militia was scattered along the woods all along the road and killed a good many of them on the retreat. They left behind almost everything they had. So said Jay Tuttle in that interview in the magazine in 1901. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. We don't learn a lot in history about all of these battles. You learn about three things about the War of 1812. The Star-Spangled Banner, the Burning of Washington, and the Battle of New Orleans. But there's more to it. We don't learn, for instance, that, you know, for a good seven or eight months, the British held Maine. And Massachusetts, led by Caleb Strong, who was not a supporter of the war, was asked to send a relief effort to, to get the British out of Maine. He said there was no way they were going to do that. Not a big supporter of the war, and also didn't think it was likely without a Navy that they'd be able to do anything. That's the nature of the war called 1812. And I think this is one of the reasons that while there were some big celebratory moments that will be celebrated as independent events, of course, you're going to celebrate the Star-Spangled Banner. Of course, you're going to celebrate New Orleans. The overall war, we're more hesitant to celebrate as Americans because it is a bit of a mixed war, a draw in many ways. Yet that war had a lot to do with forging a concept of America, a concept of the United States. One that I think had impact on today, and like so many historical events, could add some clarity to the debates of today, especially when people want to reach back to a time before it and forget that it happened. There are some great local American celebrations of the War of 1812, Little National. Compare this to 100 years ago, when a festival was held in Baltimore, September 6th to 13th, 1914. Woodrow Wilson, the president, acts as chair. Former presidents Taft, former president Roosevelt, they arrive there on hand. Admiral Dewey, the hero of the Spanish-American War, is there. 
a giant wood stage is assembled so large that it can hold 6,500 schoolchildren who together form a human flag upon this giant wooden stage, all to celebrate the War of 1812. But not just in Maryland. All summer, the Maryland exhibit now travels around the country and is exhibited to the large cities of America. If that's not enough, Thomas Edison has a movie that goes around the nation, that is seen throughout the nation, The Birth of the Star-Spangled Banner, plays to packed crowds throughout the country. The commission formed to celebrate 1912 are going to be the beginnings of the movement to get the Star-Spangled Banner from being just the anthem of the Army and the Navy to the National Anthem. There are many American victories in the War of 1812 outside of Baltimore and New Orleans. But you don't hear as much about them. You hear a little bit about Lake Champlain, Plattsburgh, stopped an invasion force that was heading into New York with some naval heroics eliminating that army's naval support, which made the British Army, though large, one of the largest armies during this war. Because the War of 1812, by the way, was battles tended to be a few thousand versus a few thousand. You go over to Europe and Napoleon's invading Russia with a 500,000 to 700,000 army. These are small battles comparatively. So 10,000 British soldiers invading New York was a pretty big deal at that time. Stopped at Plattsburgh. A lot of the victories, though, that were most inspiring were those of British ships of equal size. The British had not lost naval battles in this way all across the ocean. There's battles off the coast of Brazil. There's battles in the Pacific Ocean. Action of the war is conspiring to make Americans feel pretty good about themselves and for having stood up for their rights. But it's a war that's always influenced by the fact that there's another war going on in Europe and we're taking on an opponent in Britain that has two wars going on at the same time. Indeed, someone who would make the British nation aware of this and become an unlikely and unknown benefactor, in a sense, of the United States of America during this war, that we should perhaps, as Americans, be grateful to, is the Duke of Wellington, Arthur Wellesley, who would defeat, after these events, the forces of Napoleon at Waterloo. End of 1814, Prime Minister Liverpool wants Wellington to go to Canada and beat the Americans once and for all. Wellington says, of course, I'm willing to do whatever the government wants, but obviously I'm more needed in Europe. And he goes on to say more. He suggests ending the war in much the way that it would turn out to end. Here's what he says to Liverpool. I think you have no right from the state of war to demand any concession of territory from America. You have not been able to carry it into the enemy's territory, notwithstanding military successes, and have not even cleared your own territory at the point of attack. Liverpool agrees with what Wellington says, and after his letter he writes to his foreign secretary, who is negotiating with some parties in Vienna, do not continue the war for any holding out of acquisition of territory. Try to get our terms, but we're not holding out for acquisition of territory. 
And December 24th, 1814, American negotiators, including Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams and the British negotiators, sign at the port city of Ghent, then part of the Netherlands, now Belgium. All territory gained, including Maine, was returned to the United States. All American land held was returned to the British. Status quo antebellum. Everybody go back to your corners. Keep everything the same. Now, on paper, Ghent is striking in that way. The war is fought for nearly three years, but everything is put back the way it was. That you can kind of rattle the cage of a giant, fight him a little, and not suffer any consequences. The amount of Americans killed, less than 3,000, you know, could represent a day in the Civil War. The United States doesn't get in the Treaty of Ghent what it expected. This was kind of disappointing when the treaty comes back. They did not get any guarantee of impressment reform, that the British would stop impressing sailors on American ships. It was a sticky point in British politics. There is no way Liverpool, even Wellington with his great fame and knowledge, there's no way they were going to get a deal done that involved impressment. They could not fund you cannot keep running the British Navy without some kind of impressment program. But impressment of Americans slows, particularly after Napoleon's defeat in Waterloo. While it was as close as we have in any war in American history to a draw, immediately after the war is over, there are celebrations as if it were a victory. And as far as the United States were concerned, they had defended their maritime rights. They had stood up for themselves. They joined together for the most part as a nation. I mean, the there was apathy in New England, but there was never secession. There's also a jubilant celebration because now the economy can get back. I mean, the exports had been cut off. It has some effects. You know, a lot of them are visible today and they have some effects that we still see today. Destroys the Federalist Party as a national force. There's a convention which some of the states, particularly Massachusetts and Connecticut, sent delegates to in Hartford, Connecticut, where they talk about their region, their rights, suggest constitutional amendments to end the power of the slave states over the national government, and a few other things. They never get to secession, but it's seen as secessionist in the rest of the country. And because of Hartford, uh, the image of New England suffers versus the rest of the country. It's something that John Adams, in one of the letters to Jefferson, is quite frankly embarrassed about, the Hartford Convention. And he, even as forces of moderation kind of cool the secessionists in that convention, he sees it as embarrassing. As far as Adams is concerned in his letter to Jefferson, New England has just done the same thing that he felt was an error with the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, where those two states, Virginia and Kentucky, tried to null a federal law. It's embarrassing. If you go back to the 1790s and you have the budding Federalist Party, supportive of Washington and Hamilton, and the budding Republican Party, led by Jefferson and Madison, looking to scale down the size of the government. At this point, after 1812, 
there's a congealing of the two parties. And it starts still with Madison's second term. One of his final acts is to veto an internal improvements bill. Because there's a big movement for internal improvements. Madison's not exactly against it. But he feels that perhaps there needs to be a constitutional amendment. So he vetoes the bill. By the time you get to his successor, James Monroe, who had proven himself replacing Madison's Secretary of War during the War of 1812. That's really how James Monroe becomes president. The process is nearly complete. One of his goals, really, Monroe as president, is to eliminate parties altogether and to have one Republican Party. It doesn't quite happen. There's still Federalists in Massachusetts, but gradually the party dissipates. There's no serious group of Federalists in Congress after 1820. 1820, James Monroe gets a unanimous vote. And there's a consensus in America on certain things, one of which is spending on internal improvements, roads and canals mostly. And spending can happen from the federal government even though that these internal improvements will exist in certain states. Monroe is hesitant at first, seeks a constitutional amendment. Congress, led by Henry Clay at the time, won't even propose a constitutional amendment because they don't believe it's necessary, and they vote directly for those internal improvement bills. Monroe, unlike Madison, does not veto them. In the early part of the Republic, the United States is nervous about a fleet coming from the French, from the Spanish, but really from the British uh, as a primary threat. The War of 1812, the Treaty of Ghent, really ends that fear as a reality. And that's going to have an impact on a couple of things. Large increase in commerce. It's 1824 when James Monroe issues what we now refer to as the Monroe Doctrine. That's something that You wouldn't have heard that name used during Monroe's lifetime. It's something that started to pick up right before the Civil War. But he issues a statement that America is the principal defender of the new democracies that had just, during Monroe's term, after this War of 1812, sprung up in Latin America. Buenos Aires, soon to become Argentina, Peru, Colombia, Venezuela, and the like. America is not yet ready to make entangling alliances, the kind of thing that Washington had warned the nation against. In fact, one of the nations, Colombia, seeks a direct alliance with the United States. Monroe refuses, but he is willing, at least on paper, to guarantee the sovereignty of countries in Latin America. Now, this isn't the same as the United States becoming a superpower, but it's an evolutionary step. In 1825, there is an enactment of a large tariff, iron on wool, on cotton, that will both protect American industries and provide revenue for a large federal government that's going to do new things, provide pensions, build roads and canals, fund a large army and navy, and a new bank of the United States. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. 
You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. The tariff is widely supported at this time. There's opposition in the South, but supported in the North and West. For Canadians, the War of 1812 establishes them as a nation. There's going to be no more significant American attacks after this event. There's a patriotism that develops in the United States. We stood as a country. Uncle Sam, as a term, if not yet as a pitcher, comes to be during this time. You got songs, the Star-Spangled Banner, the Hunters of Kentucky, Here's what John Adams says to Jefferson about the end of the war. Madison established more union here than all of us predecessors, talking about Washington, Adams, and Jefferson, put together. So the kind of, we might say, Jeffersonian smallness in government philosophy, pinching pennies, uh, keeping the Navy small, maybe you can get along with the gunboats, keeping military spending at bay and perhaps relying on local militia is gone after the War of 1812. You're going to see about half of the U.S. budget, so perhaps nine millions uh, on on a standing army, uh, three million or so spent on naval expenditures by the time you get to Monroe's, Monroe's presidency, even after the war. This is generally supported. Manifest destiny is confirmed, and the way west is open to a degree because Indian tribes are removed from the powerful position that they had. They had sided in most cases, not all, there were American tribal allies, but in most cases they had sided with British. Tecumseh's attempt to create an Indian nation with an ally to the British is defeated at Tippecanoe. The Iroquois nation ends In the south, Jackson drives the Creek Nation out. This is not to be considered only a good development. The War of 1812 is particularly bad for Native Americans and their history. They're going to lose a powerful ally in the British and potential ally. In other words, an ally that could make Americans afraid to attack their land or move farther west because of the influence of the British. This isn't the only era of a rise in federal power 
federal spending, big government, if you will. It's not the only one. There's several bubbles, but it's certainly one. There's a treaty in 1817 between Great Britain and the United States that demilitarizes the lakes so that now you have the Erie, and the same year we start construction of the Erie Canal, and New York becomes the powerhouse city with demilitarized lake traffic. So you see, you know, many of the facets of life that we see today in America and the way our government is shaped starts with the War of 1812 and the concept that a United States is really something that's going to start with those events. You have to see history as an evolution. And each of these little steps is what brings us to where we are today and it's not just that you can go back and and say, well, you know, we we were a small little country, a small little government until, you know, say Woodrow Wilson came along or Franklin Roosevelt came along or, or uh, Barack Obama came along for that matter. There's small steps along the way that changed us from what was written in the quill to where we are now. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Thanks for listening.